Hello and welcome to God vs. God, the podcast where we pit ancient gods against one another for the chance at the ultimate comeback to help save the world. And we are in episode three of season two, looking for an Egyptian god to join our season one winner. So I think we're getting used to the Egyptians at this point. And uh, this episode, I have Thoth, the god of wisdom. And Matt, you have Set, uh, the god of chaos. Right. Right. So when we started this, and I approached Matt about saving the world through the medium of podcasting, (laughs) as one does. (laughs) Right. Um, Naturally. I gave him two two examples of uh, podcasts to listen to. Uh, one of which uh, you may recall, Matt, was was our friends at Grim Reading. Yes. Where they good. read and review a grim fairy tale each episode. Yes. Now, in that podcast, every time there's a particularly bloody or dismemberment-heavy episode, they give a little warning that that episode is going to be certified grim. <laughs> right? It's very kind and of so, them, yeah. yeah. And now I don't know exactly what Matt's going to say about Set, the God of Chaos, or which stories he's chosen to highlight. Uh, you know, perhaps there's a, a long tale about Set bringing meditative rock gardening to Egypt <laughs> that Matt, Matt's going to focus on. I don't know. But from what we heard about Set in the Osiris episode and the stories that I did run across about Set myself, I think we can probably say that this episode is going to be certified set yeah. for violence, trickery, and uh, divine mutilation. Is, is that accurate, Matt? That is highly accurate. That only begins to describe the debauchery uh, to be had in the in the second segment of the program, once you're uh, able to give us the story of Thoth, if I'm saying that correct. Right. I believe I am. That 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 is, that is the correct pronunciation. So... Uh, <laughs> With that warning, I think there's something else you wanted to to tell our listeners, Matt. Well, yes. I, you know, just as a point of order, uh, as you know, Andrew, the god of chaos in, in ancient Egyptian tradition described using two different spellings, right? So you've got Set, S-E-T, and then you've got Seth, right? which was sort of based on the ancient Greek version of it. The, the consonant was a little different at the end. Now, I have opted yep. for, for this episode to go with Set um, with just yep. the one T for a few reasons. First of all, brevity. Um, simple as that. We're just going to save some time, right? Uh, you know, standing to our high level of respect for the listener's time, uh, that has become yeah. the hallmark of this program. Uh, second, if this matchup were going to be Thoth versus Seth, I wish we would just, we'd sound like a couple of, uh, you know, intoxicated cotton mouths and <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe even more than we normally do. Um, and I don't know, Thoth versus Seth might also be interpreted even incorrectly as offensive to, to people experiencing speech impediments. I don't know if the, the Lisp community right. might, might be up in arms. So we'll avoid that. Uh, yeah. I think probably most of all, the name Seth just it just does not does not have an ancient Egyptian vibe. It's more like, you know, it gives you the vibe of like a middle-aged white guy. You know, it's like <laughs> right. it's Seth Rogen, Seth Myers, you know, we, we all know some guy from college with a, you know, the ball cap and really into his grill and his March madness <laughs> brackets. Good old Seth. But and when you've got all these great no. Egyptian names, like Ra, Osiris, even Tefnut, uh, just seems wrong having a, a Seth in the mix. You know, they, that yeah. would be the equivalent Throws of our, it off. First, yeah. If our, if our first season that had like, Apollo versus Bruce, you know, 
Poseidon versus Carl. Just, just doesn't quite work. So right. I just want to establish up front, set, S-E-T is what it's going to be for the second part of our program. But that being established, please uh, please kick us off with the first part in uh, in Season 2, Episode 3, Thoth versus Set. That's right. Well, I'm very gra- glad that I did not certify this episode Set. Yeah. And it would not have had the same ring. We had a lot so. of paperwork involved if we'd done that. So, yes. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so before we get into the meditative rock gardening, uh, <laughs> I'm going to tell everyone a little bit about Thoth, uh, the god of wisdom, god of writing, patron of scribes, god of medicine. He's a moon god, creator god, and and more. So uh, we'll see if this segment is, is certified wise. Um now, the name Thoth uh, comes to us through the Greeks uh, via the Demetic uh, Egyptian writing, but based on the hieroglyphic version of his name, it would be Tehuti or Jehuti. Uh, now, there is, you know, of course, uh, you know, as a linguist, uh, there's a very logical, straightforward linguistic explanation for how the pronunciation slid from Tehuti to Thoth. Uh, which I read and frankly did not follow in the least. Uh, but in the etymology terms, uh, via the hieroglyphic version, Thoth's name, uh, the meaning is pretty clear. It means ibis-like guy mm-hmm. or guy who is like an ibis <laughs> uh, because he is usually pictured uh, as as a man with, with a head of an ibis. And so I think that brings us to our season two uh, now mainstay of yes. um, where we share the picture and have you describe for the listener uh, what it is that you're you're seeing. Yes. So you you mentioned a guy with an ibis head. So the head looks like some kind of is it a bird like a swan? It, it is a bird. Okay. It, 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 ibis is a bird. Yeah. For those of us who are not as much into birds, just to establish right. that. Uh, so I'm seeing yes, a big long kind of downward bending beak uh, i'm seeing a uh, a now familiar uh, sort of disc above the head um right. hard to say if that is a solar disc um no it is a lunar it, disc it is a lunar disc yes, yes. we've okay. we switched our discs All just right. for this episode very clearly very very uh disc forward uh it looks <laughs> like he's also holding some sort of uh boy it's hard to tell it looks like some sort of ruler with a couple of uh, holes in it and maybe a paintbrush it's so, yeah, you may have to so, explain that one. I, I, I will. I will. Um, gonna, so he, what he's got there is he's got a, a stylus and yeah. uh, a little writing board, and he's writing some hieroglyphics on it. This is symbolizing him as the god of scribes and the creator of writing. Okay, very good. So we've, very... we've got him mid-action. Yeah, doing, doing a little little writing. I thought it might have been just like a very early skinny iPad of some kind with like an Apple <laughs> pencil, but no. Uh, yeah, no. So clearly sort of very dark complected. He's got uh, a nice sort of a form fitting uh, kind of a man skirt. Um, yeah. Underneath the belt. And then there looks like a, either an extended belt or perhaps a tail uh, that is extending uh, most of the way down his backside. Yeah, that's good. I think I think you've hit the main point, uh, but he, he's got the solar disc. He's yeah. got the ibis head with that long curved beak uh, that was uh, supposed to refer back to sort of a uh, crescent moon. Mm. I think that's why the ibis was a symbol of the moon. Mm. And uh, 
got the moon up above his head and, he, and he's caught there in the act of riding. So, uh, and he had a little onk on his belt, just kind of hanging off the belt. Oh yeah. I didn't see that. Yeah. Good. Glad you pointed that out. Yeah. So, so that is though. So if everybody, if you're picturing there, just picture guy with a, with a long bird neck and tiny bird head <laughs> and beak. So, so yes. that, that, that's what we're, that's what we're dealing with through this whole episode. Right. Unless he's a baboon, which he may be at some oh. certain times. <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert. So, um, you know, that's his ibis form. He has a baboon form. He could, of course, appear just as a regular dude with a dude head, but that that's rare. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of epithets that were applied to Thoth also give us an idea of how, how he was thought of by the Egyptians. And these are all going to uh, sort of come up later. So we had Thoth, Lord of the Ogduad. Okay. And Thoth without a mother. Hmm. And he is Thoth, the place taker of Ra. Place taker. And the last, the place taker of Ra. Okay. So I, I, that's uh, some lost in translation a little bit there. <laughs> and Thoth, the thrice great. Oh. Uh, which you may recall from season one, but uh, we'll get back to that. So, you know, one of those epithets, uh, Thoth without a mother, uh, is probably referring to a couple of the different origin myths from for Thoth. Uh, So he has the sort of hometown of Kenenemu, uh, which is known in the Greek as Hermopolis, because he was associated with Hermes. Right. And Thoth there was considered to have been self-created. And in his hometown, he was considered to have been uh, the creator God. So according to their mythology, in the beginning, there were these eight primordial deities or entities with a male and female pairing for each of these four different primordial forces. Hmm. We've got the boundless waters, which we've seen before. Uh, and we've got infinity, darkness, and secrecy. And so there's a male and firm female version of each of those, these eight deities who are known as the Ogdawad. And Thoth apparently was the master thereof, so mm-hmm. he's master of the Ogdawad. And these um, four, these eight primordial deities get together and they form the Mount Benben that we've, we've heard about before. Right. So it's them who forms the Mount Benben, not Ra in their version. And then Thoth comes along in Ibis form and lays, a, lays an egg on the little mountain. And out of that egg hatches Ra, the sun. So oh. in that version, he is actually uh, the mother of, of Ra or, or father of Ra. Uh, now, this is only in Hermopolis that they, they go for that. But the prevailing view outside of there was that Thoth may have been the eldest son of Ra, sun god. Mm. Um, there are some less common references to Thoth being born from a goddess's menstrual fluid, oh. uh, which again, connection to the moon the cycles. Sure, sure. sure. And, yeah. then, and then there's another uh, version of his origin that is actually tied to Set, uh, which you may have come across um, and, and We'll we'll get into that a little bit later, probably, uh, but that again involves him not having a mother. So yes, so so a lot of different versions to choose from of how Thoth came about. Uh, but and interesting know. in that first one that if he were a self created god, he chose to create himself with a giant bird head. 
That's a yes. <laughs> he's, well, he's, interesting, he, he, daring choice. Yeah, I think he originally went with just full ibis, and then ah. he compromised later. Okay, uh, with with the just the ibis head. Got it. Could, couldn't couldn't let that go. Yeah. So, however, he's created. Um, you know, one of his primary early roles was going to be act as sort of the the vicar of raw uh, as his his assistant carrying out his will carrying out his orders uh, on earth while raw is up in in the sky but early on there was at least one instance where he disobeyed the boss's order mm. order so most famous of this is when raw wanted to sleep with the goddess nut who was goddess of the sky she's also uh, the famous heavenly cow and uh nut was was the love love of geb the god of the earth and happened to be ra's granddaughter so very understandably she gave a hard pass uh <laughs> to that suggestion yeah uh choosing to go with geb you know uh, her brother which for for the uh, gods is, seems more appropriate right uh and they marry and soon she's pregnant but unfortunately, Ra doesn't just leave it there. In his jealousy, he gives Nut a curse. And he says that she cannot give birth in any of the 12 months. And he names off the 12 months. You can't, can't do it in this month. You can't do it in those months. You can't do it in that month. Uh, you know, so that's a problem. She She's she's pregnant uh, with four children. Uh, but Thoth, you know, he, he's not having this. He decides he, he's going to step in. Now he can't oppose Ra just outright. He's he's got to think of uh, a clever way to to get around this rule. So the Egyptian calendar at that point it was a lunar calendar with twelve months of thirty days, which worked out perfectly, you know, for the three hundred and sixty day uh, calendar year yes. at the time, right? So, but Thoth thinks that maybe this is a weakness. And he knows that the moon, who rules the calendar, has a bit of a weakness for gambling. Mm. So he challenges the moon to a game of checkers. And the, and the, the, and the bet okay. is that if he wins, the moon has to give him 172nd of its light. Wow. Uh, yeah, so now so he, he's the god of wisdom while the moon is, is kind of a shiny rock. So <laughs> he, he's got this one in the bag. Yeah, uh, he 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 wins the game of checkers and claims five days outside of any month, and that allows these five created days expands the calendar mm. and it allows Osiris, Isis, Nephthys, and Set to be born. Yeah, and then one day extra for 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 Nut to recover. <laughs> so all all so, because of one game of checkers. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> Uh, those extra five days we ordered to that. Um, so so apparently Ra doesn't have any hard feelings about this because at the end of the book of the Heavenly Cow, uh, which is that book about the human rebellion and, and sun god Ra's withdrawal to the sky, Ra starts reordering the world and handing out new assignments to other gods. Mm. And Thoth gets a number of jobs there, including being the vicar of Ra, sort of his point person while he's up in the sky. Uh, he's going to be the advisor to the rulers of Egypt. Thoth is put in charge of the moon, uh, who it's decided obviously cannot look after itself. 
and and, and he's he's gonna be the god of wisdom and the god of scribes. So a lot of different jobs, but yeah, got some good ones though. Good, pretty good portfolio. Yeah, he's he's got he's got a lot on his plate. So, you know, throughout that fight in episode two, uh, between Osiris and Set, we didn't really talk about it, but Thoth plays a supporting role in that, advising Osiris in that role as the advisors hmm. advisor to the ruler of Egypt. So uh, we can only assume that the god of wisdom took the night off of the party. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When Osiris got himself uh, tricked into getting in a coffin, I mean, he didn't feel like attending. Not really a party guy. So, no, that definitely could have used a little of that counsel. Uh, could right. King Osiris at that night? Yeah. Yeah. But, but he, he, you know, then Isis was put in charge. So he just goes, all right, well, now, now it's my job to uh, advise her. And he, he advises her uh, with her pregnancy. He gives her magic. Well, actually, he gives her magic to help her. Uh, put Osiris back together mm. and uh, help her get pregnant from Osiris and then crucially does protect her uh, when she's pregnant with Osiris's child who's going to go on to become uh, Horus the Younger, yes. uh, the Sky God. So I suspect we're going to hear a little bit in the second half of this episode uh, that when Mummy Osiris went down to the underworld that didn't actually end the conflictual family situations. It did not. Uh, no, there was God. So there was some unfinished business. Yes. Yeah. So I don't want to go into it now, uh, but I will say that Thoth does play a supporting role there. Yes. A little bit of judging as well as some emergency medical care provider, um, <laughs> which, which becomes excellent foreshadow. Yes. Very good. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, as I mentioned last episode, Thoth, on behalf of Ra, finds and persuaded Tefnut, the goddess of moisture, to come back uh, to Egypt uh, when she had left. Um, but there are a couple of things from that distant goddess story from Thoth's perspective that I wanted to bring up. Uh, one is that the goddess Mahat, who you will recall is an aspect of Tefnut, and I didn't realize this at the time, was also a consort of Thoth's. Mm which could have made things pretty awkward that he was searching for Tefnut with Tefnut's husband's shoe. Yeah. So, yeah. So this, you know, the, the aspect bit of, of the Egyptian gods is still a little bit of a mystery. Still sorting that out, but yeah. I don't know if it's kind of a fr Friday night is for your husband and Saturday <laughs> night is for your aspects, boyfriend <laughs> or situation, but they seem to get along and didn't, didn't cause too much. Uh, they get the, they got the mission accomplished. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so, but after that successful mission, uh, maybe to possibly to sort of smooth things out, uh, Thoth is married off to the goddess uh, Nemetawe, who is not a real famous goddess, but she is the ho hometown Hermopolis deity and was a goddess of justice. So, which seemed like a good match for him. Uh, maybe smooth things out with shoe kind of kind of clear that situation up right um and then we also see stories um telling the abilities in the tale to use fables mm. in that tale of tefnut he uses fables such as the mouse that saves the lion to persuade tefnut that she needs to come home uh to egypt and so as i mentioned earlier you know thoth is credited with creating writing 
but he's also known as a as a writer himself. Mm. He didn't just invent the alphabet. He is in his own right a writer and a storyteller, um, and was the patron of scribes. So this later Christian uh, writer Clement of Alexandria claimed that there were forty two books written by Thoth uh, and guarded and used by Egyptian priests that contained, quote, the whole philosophy of the Egyptians. Wow. But in addition to this, Thoth was credited with writing 36,525 books. Oh, my. According to the, <laughs> according to the Egyptian historian Manetho. So it has a very specific count. So you know that Manetho... Uh, must have counted them. Yeah, you don't just throw that number out there. That's very specific. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to list them all first now. Oh, great. Um, okay. I'm going to get a little more comfortable here. <laughs> Unfortunately, the full list has been lost, uh, uh, but yeah. he he just gave us the title. He didn't give us uh, all all of them. The appendix that had the full list uh, somehow got lost. So it's too bad. But you know, yeah. But both the Egyptians and the Greeks, as I said credited Thoth with teaching humans ritual, hymns, architecture, medicine, astrology, and geography, among other topics. So mm. he would have had a lot of material to deal with, to work with, to to for writing all those books. Sure. Yeah, big time. So, you know, but that core 42 books that were mentioned by Clement uh, would have been kept and guarded in one of Thoth's temples as part of a secret protected knowledge that was only accessed by the priests and cared for by them because the books were considered sort of that powerful. Sure. But there is in mythology, at least one book that Thoth wrote that was too powerful and dangerous, even for the relatively safe care of the inner sanctum of one of his temples. And so the book had to be hidden and became just a rumor. But unfortunately, as we know, that makes humans just want the book more. That's right. So, so in the tale of Setne, uh tells the story of their two princes of Egypt who went to incredible lengths to get their hands on the book of Thoth. So the story goes that this prince Setne, uh, who was also a priest and a magician kind of in his, in his spare time, at some point had heard that the very book of Thoth was buried in the tomb of a prior prince of Egypt named Nanefer Kapita. So I'm just going to call him Nanefer, yeah. uh, which I think is what his friends, friends sure. called him. So shorten it up again for the brevity, for the sake of the audience. That's right. Every, every the second counts. time. Right. Uh, so in that great, Egy greatest of Egyptian tradition, Setne decides he's going to rob the tomb mm. where this book is buried. Yeah. Yeah. And he goes, he breaks into the tomb but when he gets in, he's confronted by the ghosts of Nanifer and his wife, Aware, and their son. So the wife proceeds to tell Setne their story as, as a warning to try and convince him not to steal the book, that it's yeah. too much trouble. Yeah. So she gives a little aside about how her and Nanifer managed to convince their father to let them marry despite being brother and sister, which is a little bit of a cringe romantic tale. <laughs> but then she gets to, to the meat of the story uh, where this priest tells Nanifer where the book of Thoth is 
for the price of a thousand silver pieces and a double tax-free priest stipend. <laughs> so that guy, he, the, the priest has got this all thought out. He's like, yeah, I'm clearly this double is, stipend. He came, he came to the and bargaining no, table already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And no taxes on that either. <laughs> uh, so the priest says that there, there are the magic spells in the book that, quote, when you recite this first spell, you will charm the sky, hmm. the earth, the netherworld, the mountains, and the waters. You will discover what all birds of the sky and all reptiles are saying. You will see the fish in the deep. When you recite the second spell, it will happen that where, whether you are in the netherworld or in your form on earth, you will see Ra appearing in the sky and the moon in its form rising. So you you will get from this book, you have spells that will enable you to charm the sky and the mountains, talk to animals, and see the gods. Wow. And so Nanifer decides, yep, yeah, that's worth it. He hands over the money, gives him the stipend, and makes the deal. And so he finds out that the book is at the bottom of the middle of the Red Sea, which is a sea off the west coast of Egypt. And he is told that it is in a box of iron. And in the box of iron is a box of copper. And in the box of copper is a box of juniper wood. And in that juniper wood box is a box of ivory. And in the box of ivory is a box of silver. My goodness. And in that box of silver <laughs> is a box of gold. And in that box oh boy. is the book. Okay. And then it is under six miles of serpents and scorpions of all kinds of reptiles around the box. Oh, goodness. And then wrapped around the box is the eternal serpent. So, so all he know, promised to, to give him for this money was the location of the book. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's, He's received that location. It. Now it's up to him to retrieve the actual book. Right. Wow. So, yeah. So this is before the invention of two factor identification. <laughs> so, so this is, this is the, the security system that Thoth went goes yes. with because the, the book is that dangerous. Yeah. So Nanifer goes out on the Red Sea with a crew of magically animated wax men with the help of his own magic spells. And then he disperses uh, the serpents and scorpions, all except for the eternal serpent who has to swim down, down and vanquish in a battle under the ocean water, defeats him. And retrieves the book. Nice. And brings it up to surface. So immediately, Nanifer and his wife recited the spells from the book and were able to understand the animals and charm all of nature. And then Nanifer has an interesting sort of study uh, technique that he uses. He copied the book into a, another book. Then he dissolves the copy in beer. Oh. And then he drank the beer <laughs> and was able to, from that, he knew and remembered all of the contents oh. of the book. Where was that study technique when we were in college? My goodness. Yes. Yes. <laughs> we, yeah, we had to I'm do those sure. things separately. The book learning and the beer drinking. <laughs> if only we'd know. My goodness. Had we known. Uh, but, but finally, Thoth uh, becomes aware of what's going on. He gets he gets the alarm uh, and he goes to Rod, gets permission to punish Nanifer for taking the book and killing his now less than completely eternal serpent. <laughs> so he he got permission to attack not only Nanifer, but also anyone who, quote, belonged to him. So uh -huh. unaware of this, Nanifer and his family 
head back to Memphis on the Nile. Uh, they get a couple miles uh, out of the dock, and Nanifer's son falls overboard and is drowned. Mm. So he uses the magic to fish the kid's body out of the river. They head back to where they started, have a funeral, and then restart the journey. But this time, his wife falls over at the exact same spot. Oh, my goodness. So again, Nanifer has to fish her out. He uses a spell uh, this time to get her ghost to tell the story of what happened. And her ghost is like, yeah, it's Thoth. He's he's pissed. Uh, (laughs) We're going to have to go back to town. Uh, So so he goes back to town. He has the funeral. And he heads back out uh, by himself. But this time, you know, he's broken. And in shame, he ties the book to his body and throws himself overboard at that same spot. Um, But for him, unluckily for him, his body is then caught by the rudder of the ship and dragged all the way back to Memphis with the boat. Uh, And they they discover it once they're back. and, And the pharaoh decides to bury the cursed book with his dead son. Yeah. So this is all being told to Sedna in the tomb and Sedna hears the story and, and is not the least bit dissuaded. <laughs> like, yeah, great story perhaps, but <laughs> I'm taking the book. Yeah. Um, so needless to say, things don't go too well for Sedna after he takes it, but it is another deity Bastet who is the one who deals the punishment this time on mm-hmm. those behalf. So I'm going to leave that uh, bit of it for another episode Got it. Other than to say, at one point, Setne wakes up in the middle of the street with his erect in the clay pot before finally returning the book. So, so you'll leave us with that image. How we get there, we'll have to wait for another day. Yeah, so that, that, yeah, record scratch. You may be wondering how I got there. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's quite a cliffhanger. So, it is. So, so there we have that. Both God of Wisdom, Medicine, Writing, author of many books, Ibis-like guy, and a candidate for return to help save our troubled world. Yeah. And for all those whatever 30-some thousand books, the one that kind of survived really might have been more trouble than it was worth uh, once people got their hands on it. Yeah. Excellent. Wow. Well, there's uh, there's a lot that I didn't know about Thoth when we began this conversation and then filling in the blanks. So I, I appreciate that. All right. Excellent. Well, uh, we'll take our break there and uh, ruminate yeah. on such matters. We'll be back right after the break with uh, our second half and set just after this. And we are back with the second part of season two, episode three. Uh, Set the God of Chaos. That's his primary title. Also, yeah. as we've learned with these Egyptian gods, some some subtitles: the God of Deserts, Storms, Disorder, mm-hmm. Violence, and Foreigners. So, okay. in the day, whenever something really bad would happen in ancient Egypt, it's a sandstorm, an earthquake, a flash flood. The people would always whisper, "That is Set doing his thing." Ah, that is, yeah. That is his uh, mark on the world. So before we get any, any deeper on set, let's uh, let's go in and show you an image here, Andrew, and get your take okay. on the visual of the God of Chaos uh, when you are ready. All right. I see it now. All right. So we have, again, a man's body and um, 
kind of a, a long nosed animal, mm. um, then with, with, with two square, I think ears, uh, are, that are sticking up. Yep. yep uh, yep. black animal has, has, has a black face and, and mm-hmm. a sort of blue, uh, headdress off of right. it. He's got that familiar Egyptian pose with, uh, shoulders facing us hips yes. sort of turned forward uh and profile of the image he's carrying an onk uh yes. symbolizing life and he's carrying uh a scepter i guess i guess to, to symbolize rule right uh, he again ha- has a little bit of a man skirt on uh, yes bare legs a bit of a summer look uh you know got some some bangles going on yeah good yeah, and a little bit of a tail, kind of similar to uh, what we saw with uh, with Thoth yeah. in the first half. Yeah, excellent. Well, you uh, once again chose the the relevant parts of the image. I'll do a little bit of explaining. So you had a hard time explaining which animal the head was, and and that's understandable because it's impossible to say. You said you know it's a curved head, kind of a downward long snout. You mentioned the square topped ears. Um, there is a tail that I mentioned now, just a, sort of like an arrow. It's often described as an erect tail, but in this case, in this image, it's clearly uh, flaccid. Uh, so the animal represented in the head. So clearly hard to say. It is actually an enigmatic animal uh, that appears in art of the time, but not in art since then. So it's exclusive to ancient Egypt. Uh, okay. It is known simply as the set animal. And you'll see it in all sorts of, Images throughout Egyptian art, not just Set himself, but this animal appears in many scenes. So a fictional animal uh, not believed to be found in, in nature. And it's sort of an artistic combination right. of kind of the the most chaotic animals all rolled into one. Oh, so okay. it's sort of it's a, it's an aardvark, uh, an African wild dog, a donkey, a hyena, jackal, a pig, an antelope, a giraffe, an okapi, a saluki, and a fennec fox. So I... I thought I saw some aardvark in there because I, I saw a little bit of yep. Arthur in there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so the longer that list gets, you know, the more kind of obscure uh, yeah. the animals become. Unless I should note, if we've got any listeners who are alumni of Southern Illinois, Southern Illinois University and their beloved mascot, in which case go Salukis. Um, <laughs> and I should also mention, since I just heard of the animal known as a raccoon dog uh, in the papers just last week. Oh, yeah, yeah. Potential trouble that those uh, critters may have gotten into in uh, Wuhan around 2020. Um, we'll include that in the profile of the set animal as well. So we'll add that to the list. Yeah, uh, could be. Now, as for Set himself, you know, in the late period, as far as as his his animal nature goes, toward the final days of like the ancient Egyptian religion, he was either portrayed as as what you saw there, sort of a man with the the head of a donkey to to, to hmm. simplify it. Or in some cases, just a guy with a donkey mask on, which is kind of sad. I mean, it's like you get to the, the last couple seasons of a show that used to be really good. You know, the viewership is down, the budgets are tighter, and you realize you've devolved from this really majestic, you know, incredible unknown animal to like some dude with some kind of cut rate eyes wide shut mask. So really sad ending. But for for our yeah. purposes here for this episode, we're going to remember him in his prime and consider that head to be the set animal in all of its multi creature glory. Uh, you noted the scepter. That, of course, is the Waz scepter. We've seen that in the last couple of episodes. It represents power, rule, as you said. Um, looking closely at more closely at the at the scepter, there is a sort of a stylized hand, animal head at the top. Okay. And fork at the bottom. Now, the early gods like Set would carry this. It would later be carried by the pharaohs and the kings of Egypt. And on one hand, it's not surprising because Set was was both a god and it would would become a pharaoh. Uh, but two curiosities. So the animal head on the top of that scepter was often a representative of the set animal. 
oh, itself. Okay. So Seth's signature look involved an accessory that essentially features <laughs> himself. So which I I think it's kind of the fashion equivalent of like Jesus Christ wearing a gold chain with a cross on it. Just seems a little, a little off. Uh, and the Waz Scepter was also a symbol of not just control, but control specifically over the forces of chaos. So okay. here's Set, who is the you know the the origin of all chaos, and yet carries a staff that controls it. So very clever way to kind of hedge his bets there. I thought that was pretty, yeah, yeah. pretty thoughtful. Uh, you mentioned the Ankh. Uh, so carrying that symbol, of course, we've seen this before. It's the symbol of both uh, life and also it is the hieroglyphic word for life, uh, which when you think about it is a little bit strange. So, you know, it's the equivalent, I guess, of, of if you wanted to honor life by holding a sign that had the word life on it, you know, just right. or if you or maybe like a box of life cereal, I guess would would do that. <laughs> Uh, perhaps an old copy of Life magazine. Uh, so I do have to mention when, when I was a small child, and this is true, for a little while, I thought the word pro-life meant somebody who prefers Life magazine to Time magazine. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. And, and at first I thought, man, these these pro-life people, they get real intense about their uh, choice of reading magazines. <laughs> yeah. uh, later, I, of course, I did learn what the term really means. It turned out, in fact, they're those folks aren't really much into having choices at all. So that's that a lesson. <laughs> that's true. Uh, and you mentioned, of course, the form-fitting uh, gold man skirt to complete the look. So very well observed there. Uh, kind of giving you a good visual of where Set's coming from. Uh, and you alluded earlier, we did encounter Set in a guest appearance in our previous episode in the, of course, the myth of Osiris. Uh, right. Like his his older brother, Osiris, son of Geb, the earth, as you said, Nut, the sky, we will also recall that his siblings, Isis and Osiris, who were married, Set also married his other sister, Nephthys. So they kind of followed in each other's footsteps there. Had one child with her, Anubis. The parentage, you'll recall, was disputed. Mm. Uh, but by some accounts, Set also had some clandestine couplings outside the border. So he was the god of, of foreigners. He would occasionally slip off to a foreign land. Um, had some dealings with a couple of goddesses from outside of Egypt named Anat and Asart. And from them came a crocodile deity named, of all things, Maga, M-A-G-A. <laughs> now, yeah. we don't really hear much of anything about whatever became of Maga. Um, but given that name, there's something kind of pleasant to the absence of a further story. <laughs> this is, <laughs> you go back far enough in history, there's there's at least one one Maga who knows how to keep quiet after a while, which is kind of, kind of nice. Um, so we, we heard quite a bit in the previous episode about how Set earned that reputation as the god of, of chaos. Of course, he was envious of his big brother, King Osiris, pulled off that party trick with his gang of goons, trapped him in the fancy casket, took him over, took over as king as soon as he sent him down the river. Now, you'll also recall Isis brought her husband Osiris back to life after she found him. Set had him killed a second time, of course, cut into 14 pieces, distributed throughout all of Egypt in his parts. Now, in the middle, in that little interregnum between the two deaths of, of of Osiris, Iris, as you mentioned, managed to get, after resurrected, impregnated Osiris, which yep. led to the birth of their son, Horus the Younger. So Osiris was, of course, reconstituted. We couldn't quite come back as king, so he was essentially retired to be the lord of the afterlife. So this sort of combination of Supreme Court, Chief Justice, and kind of Walmart breeder <laughs> all rolled into one. And then this new king, Set, uh, even though he had clearly taken over under very sneaky circumstances, and even by all accounts that he was a terrible ruler, but he still got to stay in charge because he was the next in line. So Horus, who was this posthumously conceived son of King Osiris, didn't forget uh, what his old 
Uncle Set had done to his dad. So once he grew up a little bit, he, uh, in the immortal words of O.J. Simpson on his first Twitter post, he had some scores to settle uh, and got right to it. So that desire to become recognized as who should be the rightful king rather than set uh, by Horace, it tees off what I can only describe as, I'd say the longest and, and certainly the most bizarre mano a mano rivalry in recorded history. Now that is, of course, <laughs> the conflict of Horus and Set. So yeah. you'll hear. I mean, it's sort of it's all the the great rivalries rolled into one. It's like the Red Sox and the Yankees, the Bears and Packers, the Coyote and the Roadrunner. It's like all of those, but if if they all featured some sort of weird incestuous sexual overtones. Uh, so so that <laughs> times uh, about a hundred. So at its heart. The dispute is 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 all about which descendant of the king deserves to be the next king. So a little bit of succession, a little bit of Game of Thrones. Uh, technically a legal battle between Horus and Set, and it's argued before this tribunal called the Aeneid, group of deities. I think you may have mentioned them in the last episode. Uh, yep. Kind of a panel of judges, sort of similar to the the Olympians, which we knew from, from season one. Um, so included in this panel, depending whose story you believe, you know, you've got Probably the creator Ra, a tomb who's who you know invented kingship in the first place. So he's yeah. he's essentially the head judge. Uh, Geb, the father of Set, is 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 the judge of the trial, sort of beneath a tomb, according to to many of these. Shu, the god of air, is on the tribunal. Uh, now Thoth, who you talked about in the first half of this episode, in most accounts gets involved as like a judge's assistant. So he's you know in the same way that he was sort of that vicar, I think, to Ra. He's sort of like yeah. a bailiff. In this situation, sort of the, the the guy who kind of gets gets the little the little jobs done in the courtroom. Uh, yeah. So this is the version of Thoth and, and his participation in this. I know that there are some slightly different variations that we'll get to in a little bit, but I'll, I'll give you the sort of the one that that is the main story. And in that one, he is the bailiff. Also, Isis shows up here and there to help out her son. Uh, so from the beginning, this is essentially just a bunch of family members who represent <laughs> the tribunal. So. Yeah, you know, the legal system fraught with conflict from the start. It's it's uh, you know one of like one of the teams from Family Feud is also the justice system, uh, <laughs> and but at the time that you know it's early days, there aren't that many authority figures back then, so they they just work with the the ones they had. Yeah. Uh, and this legal battle uh, ended up lasting for no fewer than eighty years. That is how contested Horace and Set was in front of this tribunal. So the first episode, as they call it, is known as the contendings of Horus and Set. Now, that's a that's a very unusual word. Contending is yeah. like a very major struggle. So this is, this is not just like a skirmish or a kerfuffle, <laughs> like on the level of like a like a kampf or, or a jihad, if you will, top yeah, shelf okay. problems. Um, and right. yet, despite the gravity, it starts with, honestly, some pretty lightweight legal arguments. Uh, Set begins in his opening statement, and he argues that Horus cannot be the king. Because his breath stinks. <laughs> because he was breastfed by his mother, Isis, and that happened so recently that he apparently still has bad breath. Not a great opening line. You know, he's kind of, you can see, you see what he's trying to do. It's sort of like a yeah. rap battle where he's throwing shade at the beginning just to throw a little chaos out there. In a way, even though the joke is rather clumsy, it does a double whammy. It pokes fun at Horace's relative youth. Yeah. Um, and also just kind of slips a your mama joke in there at the same time. So <laughs> just kind of pull that off. Yeah. Um, but, you know, enough of the schoolyard taunts. This is serious business. The throne of Egypt is at stake. Uh, this is going to bring us to a conclusion. So Set ups the ante and says, declares in front of the court, the throne is mine by virtue of my strength. Let Horus prove that he is better than I and he can have the throne. 
And Horace, the younger man, responds back, challenge me to what you will. I will prove you are the weaker. So, okay, good. Now we're on to something. No more okay. taunting. You got the evil uncle. You got the precocious youngster. And they're going to settle this dispute like men. They're going to do it the old-fashioned way by shape-shifting into hippos and seeing who they're <laughs> who can hold their breath for longer underneath the river. Now, you probably yeah. didn't see that coming, but <laughs> that was their first challenge. And, and that's what they do. Both Horace and Set become hippos, head down to the bottom of the Nile River, and whoever is going to come up first loses. Okay. Simple enough. Should not cause any undue family drama, but not so fast. Once the two hip hippos head down, now Isis springs into action. Now, again, she's the former queen, Set's sister, Horace's mother, not Isis from, you know, the cousin of Al-Qaeda. Yeah. This, is, this is the old version. And she's clearly got a dog in the hut. Set killed her husband twice. She really wants her son, Horace, to take over and win, take over and be king. And remember, Isis is capable, as you said, of some magic. So she magically, once the hippos go underwater, she magically conjures up a harpoon and throws it in the water, aiming at the hippo set. One thing that's much less magical is her skill at harpoon throwing because she does not hit <laughs> that. In fact, she uh -huh. hits instead the hippo version of her son, Horace, accidentally. <laughs> now, goes back into the water, quickly recovers, takes the harpoon out, aims a second time, and on the second toss, she finally hits the target hippo version of Set. Now, Set's really injured by the harpoon, but in a surprising move, he appeals to Isis to help him out and reminding her that, hey, even though maybe I've done some bad stuff in the past... <laughs> I'm still your brother. Kind of a desperate move, but he pulls it out. And it's essentially the help a brother out gambit done for the first time. And it actually works. Isis is persuaded. Her heartstrings are pulled. So thanks to some magical help from his sister from Isis, Set gets out okay, is out of the water. And once Horace in hippo form emerges back, now he's understandably rather miffed at his mom for aiding and abetting, aiding and abetting her, his evil uncle. Right. Um, in the competition. So Horace is so upset at this betrayal, he decapitates his own mother on the spot. <laughs> he then takes her head to the top of a mountain and casts it away. Now, you'll notice another instance of displacing of body parts. This is clearly right. a popular practice in the deities of the era. Uh, to his credit, and here's where your boy Thoth gets involved. So as he, right. he, he comes in as the bailiff, he retrieves the head of Isis, puts it back on her body, and heals her. So apparently that's part of the bailiff's charge and the decapitation is, is reversed. Uh, so, but with all this unexpected extra carnage, the hippo breath holding contest, it just kind of, <laughs> yeah, you can't call it. Yeah. No, they just, we're not going to do this again. So they kind of go back to the normal non-human hippo forms and just sort of take a breather after all that. Now, Horace, as you can imagine, exhausted from all the the shape shifting, the breath holding, the the spearing injury, the mother decapitating. So he, he's, <laughs> he's up there on the mountaintop, decides he's going to catch a little bit of shut eye. While he's sleeping, though, old Uncle Set sneaks up on his nephew and gouges out his eyes while he's sleeping. <laughs> yes. Now, because this is ancient Egypt and there's loose body parts, of course, there's going to be a second step. Would you care to guess what, what happens to the eyes? I believe Thoth becomes involved. Uh, eventually, but first okay. of all, he buries Horace's eyes. So he's unable to find them. <laughs> so, and this is kind of a, again, a, a good double bind because without eyes, they're buried. So he won't be able to see them, but he also doesn't right. have eyes. So he also won't be able to see them. So right. for some reason, overnight, the eyes bloom into Lotus flowers. That detail does not come back, but it's just a nice little poetic <laughs> touch. 
in the morning, who should appear in the scene but Hather from episode one. Okay. Uh, the Sky Mother was also sometimes a cow. So Hather takes pity on Horace, who is now eyeless. Uh, she heals his wounds by pouring some gazelle milk on them, restores his sight. You know, the old kind of milk medicine, classic, classic move. <laughs> yeah. um, and at this point, the tribunal of judges kind of come back and say, all right, guys, come on. We've been through it up here. <laughs> it's getting a little out of hand. Why don't you guys, why don't the two of you just reconcile? And surprisingly, they do. Horace and Set kind of make up, shake hands, and cease their conflict for what will end up to be several hours until the <laughs> evening rolls around, in which time... Uh, the feud escalates in a quick and uh, and I'd say dramatic fashion. Now, you you made some remarks at the beginning, Andrew, about how uh, we need to sort of somehow put wrappers on certain content. We try to make the show pretty family friendly. It's not always easy. I'm going to do my best to keep the next part of the story as clean as I can. I honestly don't know what I'm going to do. So I suppose, you know, listener discretion uh, is advised. Yeah. Now, I want to say too, rest assured, both Andrew to you and to listeners, this is not some attempt by me to do some kind of vile comedy, but this is the actual story. <laughs> this is straight from yeah. the documentation, the highly reputable Chester Beatty Papyrus Number no. One, which is the gold standard of papyruses, <laughs> all the way back from the early Middle sure. Kingdom. So this is as it yeah. happened. So Horace and Set they had his brief truce. It lasts for some of the afternoon till such time as Set decides it would be a good idea to seduce his own nephew. Now, okay. as I understand it, it's it's a little delicate, but ancient Egypt was not terribly concerned with what we now understand as, as homosexuality. And so in instances like this, it was most important for some people to just assert dominance over somebody else. So regardless of who you are, you're a man or a woman, you're a stranger, <laughs> close relative, I guess, certain <laughs> bad actors, like said, they just wanted to be the aggressor and they would use uh, sort of seduction as that weapon. So... In the original papyrus, the Chester Beatty, there's language about you know phalluses and stiffening and thighs. For our purposes, we're just going to say that Set had his way with Horace against yeah. uh, his 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 young nephew's will. Uh, but afterward, kind of on the sly, Horace wants to capture the evidence of this uh, terrible act. So he gathers up his uncle's, we'll call it his seed, in his right. hands, and then of course runs to his mother for help. <laughs> Now, he's not worried about the fact that he like decapitated her like the day before. In any case, <laughs> right. He goes straight to his mom and he says, uh, in this, it's rather formally given the situation, Horace says, help me, Isis, my mother, come and see what Set has done to me. And he opens up his hands to reveal well, the evidence that he's gathered up, right. his uncle's seed. And, and what does his mother do? Mother Isis, what does, he, what does she do with this revelation? She merely grabs a copper knife, cuts off her son's hands. Uh, she then... Goes and f fetches some fragrant ointment. Okay, that's nice. Maybe <laughs> she's going to try to heal him a little bit. No, she applies it then, applies the ointment to her son's nether regions and works it out so that Horace then deposits his own seed into a pot, of all things. This is probably not the kind of treatment he was looking for from his mother, but it's what he gets. Uh, so for her next move, Isis then takes Uncle Set's seed, discards it into the river, into the marshes of the Nile. Another another recurring theme in these stories, just chucking stuff into the river. Right. Um, but she takes the seed of her son, Horace, which is in the pot, and heads over to Set's home, specifically to his garden, and encounters Set's gardener. She says, hey, your boss, gardener, you know, Set. Just curious, what, what kind of vegetables does, does Set enjoy? And gardener says, oh, he doesn't eat any vegetable here in my company except lettuce. All right, so... He's a big salad guy. Get it? Fair enough. 
So Isis, in order to get her revenge, uh, adds her son's seed all over the lettuce that is growing for, for Set. So over time, Set continues to eat the lettuce, as he does regularly. It's a standing order. And yeah. before long, as a result, what, does he realize that, hey, this isn't Thousand Island, he gets grossed out? No. <laughs> as no. a result, upon ingesting the seed of Horus, Set gets pregnant. <laughs> now, he doesn't know this news yet. And it's certainly not something he was expecting as part of his, his you know, sort of lunch routine. Uh, but he's feeling pretty good about how he exerted this dominance uh, on Horus. So he goes back to the tribunal with great confidence. And he says, all right, let me be awarded the office of ruler. For as to Horus, the one who is standing trial, I have performed the labor of a male against him. So clearly he thinks his dominant seduction move is enough to prove that he's the rightful king. Horus objects, though, and says, all that Set has said is false. At this point, in my view, he calls the most unusual witness in the trial that I've ever heard of. And he essentially says, let's summon your seed and see what it has to say on the matter. <laughs> and at that moment, from the marshes alongside the Nile, where Isis had dumped it, the seed answers back and calls back in response. Now, at this point, Thoth <laughs> steps in. Now, again, he's the bailiff. Thoth puts his hand on Set's shoulder, and he says, it's only fair to summon the seed of Horus. So he calls the seed of Horus to the stand, which at this course, at this point, Set has ingested within the lettuce leaves. So wouldn't you know it, as soon as called to the witness stand, Horus's seed answers from inside of Set because he's been impregnated by lettuce. We're keeping up so far. So this right, divine right. seed is way too important to just kind of trickle out his ear or whatever. So it emerges from Set's head in the form of giving birth to a giant golden solar disc. Now, at this point, Thoth immediately grabs the disc away and puts it on his own head as a crown. <laughs> so this is, this is, at least according to the story, where that disc upon Thoth's head originally comes from. Uh, okay. <laughs> so some, some dispute about solar versus lunar. I've seen both, right, both yeah. accounts. But if anybody ever asks, hey, Thoth, where'd you get that cool hat? Well, he's got a story <laughs> for you. So glad you asked. You, you, yes. So you would think even after this fairly damning evidence in a really dramatic courtroom moment, uh, that this would be game over. But no, Seth convinces the judges to hold one more competition because they haven't been able to decide yet. They're still deadlocked in this judge right. panel. Just uh, how about a boat race? Let's keep it simple. So they have a boat race down the Nile, but a very specific yeah. sort. It's going to be a, a race of ships and the ships have to be made of stone. So each of them has a ship. The race begins and it ends really quickly because Set's boat instantly stinks. I'm sorry, instantly sinks yep. to the bottom of the Nile, perhaps because, as I said, it is made of stone, which <laughs> right, tends yeah. not to float. Somehow, though, Horace's ship floats along just fine and it appears he's going to win, but it is discovered that he cheated and, in fact, made the ship out of pine, which does float, and <laughs> covered it in gypsum, which looks kind of like, like a plaster to make it look like yeah, stone. Yeah. Well, Set sees this, is furious that his opponent has cheated. So he, again, does what any normal human being would do, transforms himself into a hippopotamus once more, bashes his head into the side of his rival's ship. It breaks into splinters and exposes Horace's deceit and cheating. So these are only a few chapters, Andrew, of this <laughs> ongoing battle. And these shenanigans go, and they include the removal of testicles, the removal and, and, and reinsertion right. of eyes. There's mutilation. They're somehow restored. Again, 80 years of this. And eventually, 
growing a little bit understandably weary of all, all this bizarre <laughs> violence. The judges finally say, all right, we're going to take this to a higher court. We're not going to decide in this tribunal. We're going to send it to Osiris. We're going to, we're going to elevate it, who is the lord of the underworld. He'll decide who should be king. Now, of course, Osiris, in this case, has to choose between his own son and brother, who had killed him, but not once, but twice. So (laughs) unsurprisingly, he chooses his son, Horus. Uh, Set is chained up and finally concedes, which is, to say the least, an inglorious conclusion. Now, I will point out that in some traditions of the story, most of the traditions of the story, Set is bound in chains, in some cases sent to the underworld. There are a few stories that he, uh, little small things he's known for doing afterward, but this is essentially the kind of disgrace that he goes down into. But I should say, in full disclosure, there are uh, artistic renderings of Horus and Set making up at the end and co-ruling together to the point where there are images of them both on the same throne. There are images of them, two heads coming out of the same body. Now, I don't know, guys. After all these two have been through, this strikes me as the first instance of a, a detail of the story that I don't really buy. I don't think that could happen. <laughs> that is implausible. <laughs> that, that, so, just that part. Just that that's, part. That's that. Finally, something that just rubs me the wrong way. So, we'll assume that in fact, uh, according to most stories, Horus was the winner, and uh, and and Set goes away in shame. That said, he does have kind of a little second act. He becomes a protector of Ra, the sun god. So he becomes part of that solar bark ship that rides across the sky, right. um, and is a good protector. He is he's able to defend. Ra from an attack by Apep, who is the kind of serpent-based uh, opponent of light and truth, a very tough mm-hmm. enemy. Um, now, beyond that, though, he, he, some say he helps in the underworld to shepherd some souls to the underworld to Osiris. Uh, but even that sounds a little implausible, that after all <laughs> that, Osiris would kind of be his boss. So we'll right. leave that with uh, with a grain of, of salt. But he becomes an outsider for obvious reasons. He's worshipped still, but only in the kind of outside of Egypt because he is the god of foreigners. So in the, in the sticks, he still does have a little bit of a following. Yeah. Uh, but over time, there's a period in the second intermediate period, 1650, 1550 BCE, where, where, where Lower Egypt is conquered by Near Eastern peoples known as the Hyksos, who like the fact that Set was the god of foreigners. It's like, hey, we're foreigners too. Cool. <laughs> so they bring him back and they begin to worship okay. Set once they take control. Later on, in the third intermediate and late periods, Egypt is conquered by other outsiders. Now we get to the Kushite, the Persian empires. At this point, the original kind of native Egyptians who are left are like, they're just tired of all these foreigners. And so they say, you know, set God of foreigners. We're going to double down. We're going to demonize and vilify you yet again. So okay. in the end, he becomes largely vilified, really seen as this agent of chaos, this bad guy, with the exception of just a few little outposts way out in the sticks. So in conclusion, I think you can see even from this selection of stories that set was right. the God of chaos for a reason. I think uh, yeah. you, his, his dramatic overthrow of Osiris would have been enough on its own to kind of claim that title. Right. But uh, these contendings of set with Horus uh, really take his awfulness to a new level. And uh, to be fair, not everyone around him behaved great either. You know, you got the hippo breath holding contest, some clear interference in that, you know, the seed-based shenanigans. There were a number of parties involved. He wasn't the only bad guy in these stories, but uh, probably still the worst. And I, and I guess to his credit, you know, he, he showed a sense of fair play and using a real stone ship in the boat race. Uh, didn't cheat, but, you know, he got, well, what did he get for that? It sunk and he lost the entire conflict. So in the end, if nothing else, uh, for all of his many, many terrible traits, uh, if nothing else, the God of Chaos did truly live up to his name and uh, was chaotic. That he did. Yeah. So there you go. There's sure. 
there's our competition for uh, for the second part to go against quite those. a contrast. Is, yes, quite a contrast. So we'll uh, we'll process the stories we've just heard. <laughs> <laughs> Take a break. Take a break and uh, get back for our rounds right after this. All right. All right, and we are back to our five categories that are going to determine the winner between these two gods, Set and Thoth. And we start off, as always, with Immortal Combat. And that is simply who would win in a physical confrontation between these two gods. And I'll, I'll go first, first uh, give a little bit of uh, what I see in Thoth. Mm-hmm. So unlike Set, there aren't too many stories where where Thoth is engaging in combat. You know, he he's more of an advisor, more of a thinker, more of a right. writer. Right. Um in the distant goddess, you know, he is in da- he is puts himself in danger when he's confronting uh the fire breathing lioness version of Tethnut. Um uh, and and there he uses his smooth talking baboon form <laughs> in order to defuse the conflict and avoid it. Right. Uh, but does not actually engage her in, in battle. And then when when Ra has his unreasonable curse on Nut, um, Thoth goes about finding a loophole and tricks the moon into giving him his way and allowing Nut to give birth. So, um, yeah, he certainly will use his magic occasionally to to harm others. Uh, you know, he's not above uh, throwing a child or a woman into a river mm. uh, using his magic. Sure. As we saw, um, he could perform the role of executioner on behalf of Ra when when given the order. Yeah. Uh, and interestingly, um, there's not a lot of detail that I could find on this, but there's a uh, maybe not the, quite the gold standard papyrus, but the Jumhilak Jum, papyrus, hmm. and that has some some writings about the contentions of Horus and, and Set, and in that uh, papyrus, it says that. Thoth and Set had an actual physical hmm. uh, altercation. Oh, so we have some um, real data it, on this. Yeah. It has some real data on that. And that, that Set attacked Thoth uh, and cuts his arm off and throws Thoth's books and his arm in the river, uh, probably shouting nerd uh, <laughs> while doing so. <laughs> You probably gave him an atomic wedgie on the way down to the Nile. Yeah. Yes, the 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 Thoth does uh, retrieve his arm and uses his own magic to to put it back on. Sure, himself. sure. So that's what I have on, on Thoth in, in in combat. Not not a huge record there. Yeah, it's it's a hard one. I think in some ways, uh, Set is a formidable foe. I mean, we know from the overthrow of Osiris that if nothing else, he wasn't afraid to recruit people from the dark corners of society to yeah. do his bidding. So he could, he could gather up some goons uh, when he needed to. He was clearly not, he, not hesitant to use all tactics as disposal, you know, eye extraction, arm removal and river throwing, as you said, burial, dismemberment, <laughs> forced seduction right. of relatives. Nothing was off the table. Um, you know, somehow he, he still has decent relationships with his family members, even after all those 80 years, <laughs> despite some terrible behavior. So he could have some other kind of, uh, potentially some allies on his side, despite all that. We do know that he, one thing I, I had learned and didn't know this, so he he was actually very strong. And 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 not only was he 
you know, able to overthrow, but he did have some 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 might and was seen as it was feared as being strong himself. So even though he did often delegate the dirty work, he had some right. strength. Um and that's seen in that in the ability to repel a pep, that serpent god, uh to to keep Ra safe, to to give the boss a solid. So I guess it's probably safe to say that he had the capability. He had the certainly the motivation uh, yeah. to when in a confrontation to uh, to go after his opponent. Um, I guess the only the only two kind of question marks would be you know in a conflict of sort of wisdom versus brawn, can a Thoth type figure kind of outwit a a, a right. set who is not really known to be the brightest of bulbs, um, perhaps, but. Something tells me it, the, the other kind of question mark would be after all that set has been through his hippo related injuries, his <laughs> postpartum solar disc situation. Uh, does he still have it in him to, uh, to, to be at fighting strength? I think given all we know about chaos being his brand in a physical conflict, terrible of a, of a divine being as uh, set was, I think I have to give him the nod to be the victor in that confrontation. Yeah, I, I, it, you know, there, there's, um, certainly, Thoth has this reputation. He, he's a great magician in addition mm. to all these other things. That's true. But we don't really, you know, get a lot of uh, solid evidence on, on what that is and how that would play out in in a combat situation. They both can kind of turn into any animal they want. Right. Uh, right. You know, th- those those sorts of things. Um, so I don't think there's really any advantage there. So. I just think that uh, Set also has kind of a God of War thing, so I, yes. I'm going to go with Set uh, on on the Immortal Combat. So I think I think we're in agreement there. I, I think you're right. All right, so that is one for Set, and that brings us to our second round, which is Curriculum Deity, which is simply uh, who would you rather be? Who would you rather follow? Who has that it factor? And I believe you're going to go first on this one, Matt. Yeah, I you know, there's really nothing about set that I would aspire to as a <laughs> as, as a figure. I mean, I, I suppose if I if I had to say something, it would be kind of cool to have your own animal, I guess. But even then, it was considered a fictional animal. So if I really wanted to, I could sort of invent a Matasaurus of some kind and and and, and get that. Um, in terms of his his ongoing troubles, you know, as a Irish Catholic raised to suppress emotions and avoid conflict. I would not do well with an 80 year legal <laughs> battle of any kind, uh, particularly with family members. I, so I don't think that would be my bag. Um, I also admittedly, I do enjoy salad on a regular basis and I would hate, want to continue to enjoy it without worrying about the origins of, of any of the dressing that might, I might encounter. So uh, in terms of wanting to be one, it doesn't seem like a happy life, you know, chaos, was not terribly good at governing. Even when he murdered people, he had to murder them twice. Uh, clearly some some sticky family situations. So uh, not a lot of high points for who I'd rather be. In terms of worship, I mean, I alluded to this before. He was kind of, the, he was from Upper Egypt. So the the uh, the kind of more, more of the desert part of the country, out in the boonies and outside the borders, he would still have some temples even after his disgrace. There was an important one in a, in a place called Sepermenu. Sepermaru. Okay. Um, there was a secondary shrine inside the original shrine called the House of Set. Powerful is his mighty arm. <laughs> kind of interesting. Um, some of Set's temples also did have a House of Nephthys as right wife, which I think is on one hand is kind of nice that uh, that they get to be together uh, over yeah. all these years in worship. Then said, I can't believe their marriage would be terribly strong after Set's level <laughs> of uh, peccadillos. Let's say so. <laughs> I'm not sure it was uh, really great for them to be with each other to eternity. Um, 
in terms of uh, of of events that would be happening in the worship realm. So Edfu, which is part of the cult of Osiris, of course, is his brother, but enemy. Uh, every year, the yeah. priests would hold this ritual uh, in sort of dishonor of Set, where they would they would castrate and dismember a donkey, essentially in dishonor to to remind them of uh, of, of how much they disliked Set. Um, but at the same time, kind of puzzling, a lot of ancient Egyptians were still perfectly fine worshiping over certain periods, worshiping Set and Osiris and Isis at the same time. Okay. Even though they were very much on different teams. Uh, and I couldn't understand why this was, but then I kind of saw in, in one book it made a lot of sense. Not only did they not want to pick a team, but the way they saw it when it comes to to Mott, you know, this sort of sense of Egyptian divine balance, right. you had to have chaos in order for peace to have any meaning. So no, even okay. though Set was this 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 chaotic being, he he was part of the overall balance of things. So as a, as as a worship experience, it wasn't great. You had to go looking for one of these temples. They were not in favor for most periods. They had certain areas of invasion invasion of the Set where they came back and he became in favor. Yeah. But as a whole, uh, probably more of an embarrassment to uh, to worship us <laughs> than anything else. So not really good good ranks for me on either being or worshiping the god of chaos. All right, we'll see how that compares because, uh, you know, we don't get a lot of uh, details on the family life for Thoth. Uh, you know, he may have had that girlfriend in Mahat, uh, and, and then uh, the wife, and then uh, there's the goddess uh, Seshat, who was reportedly his daughter. Uh, she was goddess of scribes and uh, measurements and rituals. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, he had a little bit of a family life. Uh, not quite the chaos that uh, Corset had, um, but mostly Thoth seems like kind of a workaholic. You know, he, mm. he's advising the god pharaohs. Uh, he's always writing a book. He, he's he also would spend some time uh, during the day guiding the sun bark along with Mahat, um, mm -hmm. his, his ex girlfriend by that point, I guess. Um, <laughs> it's still working together on friendly terms. Clearly, yeah, yeah, they still they had a working relationship. So, uh, you know, he he also recorded. Uh, the judgments on souls. So, uh, you know, they would do that balancing act and he would be pictured down in the underworld in baboon form, hmm. uh, writing down, uh, you know, keeping track of, of, of the record of what actually was decided. Um, sure. And, and he had some, some, you know, moon regulation uh, responsibilities. So that's a little bit vague. So he, he was, he was very, very busy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he spent some 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 time in the underworld, uh, but he also he had a great deal of magical abilities, uh, in medicine and other areas, and and yeah. and the writing, you know, he had, so he had a creative outlet uh, with mm -hmm. the writing, which, which seems mm -hmm. like a plus. Um, you know, and yet again, we're, we're we're looking at a god who spends a good amount of time with a bird head. I think should should be should be said. <laughs> That's uh, true. He, he, he's he's got an ibis head. Um, yeah, but you yeah. know. But one advantage of that is, is apparently ibises have a special ability to find food underground okay. by detecting the vibration through their beaks. So, <laughs> well, there's a plus. You know, yeah, if, if if you're a little peckish, uh, you can just say, oh, <laughs> I, I, I hear some, I feel the grubs underground. <laughs> that would come in handy snack. sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Snack time. But, you know, he, he could be another form. So that is a personal choice. Yes. Um, in terms of worship, uh, Thoth had a couple of big temples that were dedicated just to him. And then in addition to that, uh, in many of the other temples, 
there there'd be a little Thoth section, a little Thoth shrine within mm-hmm. within it, uh, because he was such a helper deity and, and it was uh you know involved with so many um myths that you know there'd be a little bit of sh- Thoth action. So you could yeah. go the best supporting the actor ones. Oscar. Yeah, that's that's nice. So you go either to the big ones or or, or you could go to to the little ritual. Yeah. So there's some convenience there, right. um, you know. And there's there was one big Thoth festival, um, that was around the calendar. Our calendar would have been August sixth, hmm. and it's kind of sandwiched between the death of Osiris Fest and the Drunken Goddess uh, Festival of Hathor that we we talked about at our first Egyptian right. episode. Right. So this one is also it's a little bit in temperament in between kind of the mournful Osiris fest and the wild abandonment of the drunken goddess festival. It's a little bit more of a medium fest. It's kind of <laughs> pulling you back up from, from the low to the high. So yeah, you need a little um, transition there. I can, I can understand that. And, and of course, as, as I mentioned, the, the Ibis was, was sacred to Thoth. And so at a couple of his largest temples, uh, the priests would raise huge flocks of Ibis, Ibises, um, and de- devotees could contribute to the bird's care, oh. um, and even though through the royal family there was there was a royal farm called the Fields of the Ibis that was dedicated just to growing grain uh, for these sacred birds. However, if, if you wanted to go further, one step further, and you didn't want to pay for the care of one of the birds, you could pay to have one killed, oh. and <laughs> you 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 would pay to have it killed and sacrifice one to Thoth. One of his so sacred ibises, yeah. Um, and not only were they sacrificed, the ibises were then mummified. Oh, and then it's the mummification that is going to send the bird's soul back to Thoth. And okay. um, you know, probably during his break time when he's adjudicating human <laughs> souls, uh, the, the worshippers would would slip a message in with the bird mummy. Hmm. So that when Thoth receives the bird mummy, their little message would fall out and say, oh, can you help me with this thing? <laughs> so at these two different temples, uh, archaeologists have found four million ibis bird uh, mummies at one. What? And nearly, and nearly two million at the other. So there wow. are at least six million of these found. They um, found these like in modern day? Yes, the the. Yes, the modern day like have these these mummies. Wow. Uh, however, with that kind of volume, inevitable that there were a few corners could get cut, <laughs> and so X-rays on these mummies ha- have revealed that only about a third of them had the whole bird in it. Ah. And some of them had just a piece of the bird, or it could be as uh, as small as as having a feather. That's pretty and sneaky. Then, yeah, we have one re- recording from a priest of Thoth uh, in a writing called The Archive of Horror um, about the scandal in this uh, where the priests who were cutting the Ibis product without the knowledge of the customers uh, were actually put on trial. So so justice was served. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so you know, there's a lot, lot of options, uh, just that, you know, uh, caveat emptor, <laughs> if, 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 if you're... <laughs> If you're getting your, your uh, ibis mummified, make sure that you're getting the whole bird. That's so. just, that's common knowledge right there. That's just conventional wisdom. Yeah. 
Yeah, you just got to be cautious oh. with those ibis sacrifices. So, <laughs> you know, all that said, I think I'm I'm gonna have to go with Thoth on this one. Uh, the being I feel like is is definite, and and, and the worship. Uh, you know, even though maybe bird mummification is not like a hobby that I'm I'm looking to pick up. <laughs> uh, I think there were there were other options that you could probably just skip that skip that piece of it. Yeah, I I I join you. I think Thoth is the easy choice there. I uh, there's very very little to to like about the. Uh, the being or worshiping of Set. So I think we, we, we share the vote on curriculum deity. All right. That, that brings us to one to one and brings us to good God. And that is simply uh, who has the better character? Uh, who Who's the better deity? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think in, in uh, season one, we would say mixed bag a lot. Uh, and yes. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how much of a mixed bag these two are, but we'll see. So, <laughs> uh, you know, overall, I think Thoth actually comes out pretty well in this. Yeah. Uh, you know, in that Curse of Nut, uh, Goddess of the Heavens, clearly Thoth is the one who's in the right and, and Ra is in the wrong. And and Thoth takes a little bit of a risk uh, to set that uh, to right. Um, you know, uses his stealth and guile. Uh, so I think that was a good one. In the Osiris myth and the contentions of Horus and Set, um, I think Thoth is mostly in the positive light, mostly on uh, the right side, acting as that that bailiff, um, sometimes a mediator, he saves baby Horus. Uh, you know, he, he magically reattaches some uh, genitals, and he magically reattaches some eyes. You know. So I, I think he up pretty well there. Um, and then there's this uh, religious text known as the Bleaker Papyrus. Hmm. And it says of Thoth that Thoth, the legislature in heaven and on earth, he who sees to it that the gods remain within the limits of their competency, each guild fulfills its obligations and countries know their frontiers and the fields of their opportunities. So, Kind of interesting there. He he's he kind of is part of keeping things together, keeping order. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, making sure make sure the gods themselves don't step out of uh their competency. You know, make sure Tefnut doesn't start playing with fire. The goddess of moisture, <laughs> just stay in your lane. Right. Um. So he he's upholding Mahat and that divine order. And then in the afterlife, uh, it is Baboon Thoth, who's recording judgments. Um. You know. So. He he's got kind of a bureaucratic role, but I, I think one that is is a positive contribution. Um, one downside of that that uh, Setne and Nanifer story, uh, you know, he probably didn't really need to kill the kid. No, you know, so <laughs> probably, he's, probably 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 done without the, the child murder. <laughs> I think so. Uh, he was committed at that point. He was just going to go whole hog. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that one goes in the moral loss column, but you know, <laughs> on the whole, the ledger still comes out okay. Yeah, right. And then and the other one about about the book. So if the book is that dangerous, you know, did he really need to write it down? Maybe mm. that, that was a mistake. That could have been to, yeah. of just creating it in the first place. But you know, uh, he wanted to remember that, that stuff. So overall, I, I'd say he he comes out as I said pretty pretty well. Yeah, yeah. I. I... 
my entry in, in the character ledger will be relatively short, I think, for <laughs> said not a lot to add. I mean, you've heard you've heard the tales a lot. Very selfish, violent, sneaky, you know, couple quick things about protecting Rush or maybe ushering souls in the afterlife. OK, um, there, there's something compelling about pr- producing that sense of balance with, with chaos versus peace. But even that seems like kind of a stretch. I did not mention I think I mentioned he set came from the upper part of Egypt, which was known as the red. Uh, the red part of the country. It was where the deserts were. Yeah. So he, uh, apart from everything else, he also sort of sowed uh, polarization within Egypt, where not only <laughs> were, were, were these sort of political, uh, you know, power seizing battles with Osiris and then later with Set, but he also sort of took, had his own people from his part of the country really rally against the interests of the other. So to add oh, to everything okay. else in the character department, he was also a bit of a political rabble rouser on top of everything else. So, um, nothing really good to say beyond a couple of small items there. So I will, I will gladly give Thoth, uh, the, the character thumbs up on this one. Um, the intellect, you know, the, yes, the, the, the couple of items you mentioned in the last column, but for the most part, it seems like he got a lot of things done was, was living a life of wisdom and, and letters. And I fully respect that, uh, and cannot with any good conscience give set a vote on this. <laughs> so it goes to Thoth for my, my side of the question. All right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I will certainly agree with that. And so that yeah. puts us at two to one uh, for Thoth. Uh, but then it brings us to round four, which is iconography. Mm-hmm. And that is who has the better legacy today, uh, who's more influential uh, throughout history. Um, and I believe uh, this is your turn to go first again. Yeah. So, you know, it's a little tricky on the legacy question with some of these Egyptian guys. They just don't have as much sort of longevity in the culture as, as some of the folks uh, from the Greco-Roman tradition. That said, at the time, uh, Set was associated with planet Mercury. He did have a sort of planetary association. Um, okay. Then again, it's now known as Mercury. So that, that <laughs> legacy is not as strong. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If anything, it maybe speaks to the legacy of Freddie Mercury. That's what it's called. But no, <laughs> uh, he he had a planet, but uh, kind of doesn't anymore. Uh there's an anime series, of course, called JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, uh, Stardust Crusaders, that features a minor enemy uh, named Alessi, based on set, who can rapidly de-age anybody who steps into shadow, uh, which I thought was an interesting ability. Not sure how close that relates to the story of set, but it's out there in the arts. Uh, of course, the word set has lots of meanings um, in math and computing. I'm guessing because of the gods' inclination toward chaos rather than order, don't think there's a connection uh, between math and computing uh, with no. this fella. Uh, Set is also the name of a uh, of the den for a badger, uh, and apparently the badger den is quite sophisticated. So I did not know this. The largest set uh, for badgers can have tunnels of up to a thousand feet. They have forty openings, as many as forty openings. They can have fifteen badgers who live in them. So a badger set, quite impressive. Uh, <laughs> yes, I isn't it though? I can't give Set the god a ton of credit for that. Uh, Set is also the acronym for the Science, Engineering, and Technology Student of the Year awards. <laughs> which are given to outstanding undergraduates in the UK. Although again, I don't suspect the award ceremony has any kind of like hippo based <laughs> contests, eye gouging, any sort of seed related sabotage. I hope not. No. Those, those, those <laughs> no. hard studying uh, Brits, they deserve better. Um, and of course the set is your basic formation in square dancing. It is your unit of play in the game of tennis. Uh, it is your group of repetitions when you're away training. And it is the, uh, the volleyball move between the bump and the spike. It's very hard to go straight from the bump to the spike. You got to have the set in the middle uh, for the most part. So 
very few of these I can attribute to set the God. Uh, right. And so legacy wise, fairly weak, but that's, that's about the best I got. All right. All right. Um, so, you know, Thoth, like said, you know, he, he had a month in the Egyptian calendar, okay. uh, roughly September 11th to October 11th. And, and, you know, that is still used in the Coptic calendar yeah. by rural Egyptians. So, yeah, there farmers, are some yeah. people out there who, yeah. who, who are, are using that. Um, you know, one of Thoth's epithets I, I mentioned at the beginning was Thoth the Thrice Great. Right. And I don't know if you recall this, but uh, from our Hermes episode in season one, hmm. uh, but that was synchronized with Hermes. Uh, so all that Hermeticom came out of a uh, combination of Greek Egyptians uh, during the Hermes reign uh, in the, in Egypt. And so really sort of a Thoth Hermes collabo. Um, and that and that's where we get those, the, these dialogues about alchemy and philosophy okay. uh, that went, went on to uh, influence the occult uh, throughout the, the middle ages and, yeah. and into the, the 19th century. So a little part, part, part credit there to Thoth. Nice. Um, Collabo. He is it. Yeah, he, he, he is a, a character in, in the video game Smite. Um, mm. He's a, also a character in one of the versions of Assassin's Creed oh, as sure. a Thoth character. So it's a little, little uh, video game yeah. uh, life to him. Uh, so the early 20th century cultist and general weirdo Aleister Crowley yeah. uh, came out with his own Thoth tarot card set. Uh, so one of the the that was in 1943. Then we get um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote a short story titled "The Ring of Thoth." Hmm. So that's a that's a pretty good get. Sure. Uh, then then we have the Thoth Tower, which is a space launch platform by the Canadian company Thoth Technologies, <laughs> uh, that was proposed in. 2015 and has so far not been built. Hmm. Um, and then there's a couple different books here. And so uh, there's one called the Emerald Tablets of Thoth the Atlantean. Hmm. And so I'm going to read you a little bit of the blurb about that. Um, it, it's kind of interesting. Uh, so it is the spiritual, occult, and historical significance of the Emerald Tablets is almost beyond belief of modern man. Written around 36,000 B.C. by Thoth the Atlantean priest king, this manuscript dates far back beyond the reach of any Egyptian writings ever found. The author, Thoth, a master teacher of the early Egyptians, put this treatise to writing in his native Atlantean language. And Dr. Doriel, by use of the expertise as an occultist and master of time and space. Wow was given directive to retrieve these tablets and translate them to English for the edification of modern man. And so it kind of goes on and on about this. And when I was first reading this, I thought that this was a fiction book, but this is not. <laughs> this is, say, this but, is a, or, or this some is sort of L. Ron Hubbard sequel. I can't quite tell. But no, yeah, you're, you're closer to the truth there. So it, it says, um, Dr. Doriel is the spiritual leader teacher of the multitude of seekers of light having founded the metaphysical church and college the brotherhood of the white temple um 
And so it goes on and on. And, and so the, the Brotherhood of the White Temple Incorporated is a correspondence school accredited accredited through the state of Colorado <laughs> and mails out its worldwide <laughs> membership weekly. Oh Lessons of truth. Wow. Oh my goodness. That, that I did not see that coming. And so so uh, the author was uh, Maurice Doriel, which was a pseudonym for Claude Dodgen, uh, mm-hmm. was his real, original name. And he was an occultist who lived in Denver, Colorado, establishing the Brotherhood of the White Temple in 1933. And this little blurb about him says that in 1929, uh, Doriel's astral self still would have been in Tibet studying esoteric knowledge, while his physical self was driving a cab in Wichita. Wow. <laughs> you know, that's just crazy enough to be true. I can't yeah, believe so, after so, after spending a few years in Denver, you didn't become uh, entwined with this uh I know I, organization. I out, but I mean it's a correspondence school, so really anyway. I guess it could be anyway. I, I like that the, I like that they're still sticking with the stale mail. They're not they haven't put it up on the internet. So <laughs> um wow. And then and there's there, there's also a, a Thoth romance novel, but I, I think it can't quite live up to uh, the the emerald uh, tablets. No, that's so. wow. Well, I this is this is practically a no brainer. I think uh, if I'd known <laughs> that Thoth had that kind of legacy, I we wouldn't have had the discussion. So, definitely gets my vote. Fully Thoth on this one. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, th- I think he does. Yeah, I, he he. he got that in the bag he's got poultice all over uh it's got half credit on the hermeticom that like that puts it both and he has this in the bag but as ever we are completists yes and we're gonna complete all five rounds uh so that's gonna take us to our final round which is matinee idol and that is who would make the better movie or limited series yeah and with with this one, I'm I'm gonna go first. Um, and so the the thought I had here is is kind of an uh an action comedy uh limited series. Uh, so the main character is is Sammy Thoth, who is a 30 year old professional student with 22 degrees. <laughs> he's kind of kind of an an uber nerd, but he's been yeah. booted out of school because he has all of the degrees that they can get. <laughs> so. Out of school, he decides to write a book with all of the esoteric knowledge of the world that has filled his brain, uh, the significance of which is almost beyond the belief of modern man. Right. So he realizes after he's gotten this all out on paper, he realizes that the knowledge is just too advanced and too dangerous for the rest of civilization mm. and decides not to go through with publishing it. But shortly after he makes that decision and informs his editor, the manuscript has been stolen. And he must become more than just a writer. He must become a hunter for his own occult texts and books. Unfortunately, uh, Sammy Thoth cannot fight his way out of a wet paper bag. So alongside him, he has his uh, friend Shoe Robinson comes along and <laughs> Teffy. Uh <laughs> His sort of split personality, sometimes girlfriend. Right. And together they're going to go seek the book of the gods, uh, only to find that it is with the nefarious Apophis Serpent Brotherhood. And then three 
Three countries later, the trouble continues, but so does the fun. <laughs> very nice. Oh. Any uh, any casting on that, or did you? Uh... Oh yeah, so I had had it on on that. Uh, Sam Richardson and Tim Robinson as shoot. Uh, Sam Richardson as Thoth and Tim Robinson as uh, his his brother and friend Shu Robinson. And I didn't didn't come up with a, with a a tough nut as casting on that one well we'll leave that to hollywood to figure out yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so comedy adventure story very nice well this was a this was a very interesting challenge for the story of set and i I know what you're thinking andrew i mean with it with a tale like that what a tale for the cinema twists and turns (laughs) so many entanglements so much so much drama but frankly i kept coming back to the, the, the fact that set himself is a pretty heinous lead character pretty bad creature i don't think today's movie going public would have a lot of tolerance, frankly, for for the antics that he showed uh, throughout his career. (laughs) That said, we also, no matter what era, we love films about how the sins of parents kind of ripple down through history to the next generation, uh, who either fall into the same patterns as their parents or they fight to reverse them and be their own people. So you recall very early on in this conversation, along with his wife, Set also had these clandestine affairs with a couple of foreign goddesses, Anat and Asart. And yeah. you'll also recall from those unions came his love child, a crocodile deity named, as I mentioned, Maga. <laughs> so I'm picturing a cartoon coming of age film, feature film with a young little critter, little crocodile god uh, called Growing Up Maga. Now, <laughs> that name is going to conjure up, let's say, certain expectations, uh, yeah. even if you're an adorable young animated crocodile. So but it, it asks these big questions about what what are the expectations upon you. So what for starters, what if you lived your country, you loved your country, but your mom was someone your dad found in a foreign land? Okay. What if your dad had lots of weird kind of dalliances based on dominance? So you never knew how many more siblings were eventually going to show up. And as our friend Maga asks himself throughout the film, what if your dad, let's just say, took over the leadership of a country under dubious circumstances? <laughs> And then governed in a manner that was was pure chaos. Let's also say your dad really only stood up for the red part of the country and 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 made it go against the rest of the country, just out of the, out of the theoretical. Now, what if dad went to great lengths to then exact vengeance on his predecessor in governing the country? What if he kept using hired goons to take care of all of his dirty work, but they never quite got the job done? What's it like having a dad who's tied up in legal battles for decades? How do you grow up that way? When, whenever he gets defeated, what if your dad just blames the person who beat him, claims everything's rigged? So this is the choice that little Maga has. Do I want to be like that father figure? Or would I learn from that? Maybe he live a different life. You treat that as a cautionary tale. After all, lots of people around him seem to like chaos for some reason. And, and ultimately, his dad's not going to be of much help because he doesn't talk to him much, doesn't have a lot of advice. They hardly ever talk. The only advice his dad ever gives him Say, son, sometimes bad things happen to people who eat too much lettuce. So stay away from it, unless it's on a Big Mac, in which case you're fine. So audiences can find out what direction this confused little crocodile chooses in Growing Up MAGA, a new animated film with a surprisingly convincing vocal performance in the title role from Donald Trump Jr. <laughs> and there, there's that you're going to go with Eric, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, parallel lives. It would seem very uh, interesting. Interesting uh, 
let's just say metaphors at play with that story. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting. All right. So yeah, I think two interesting stories uh, going different different directions. I'm glad to see pulled pulled out the animated. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Mix it up. Yeah. I, I, I'm at a loss. Do you do you have a do you have a, a vote winner in this one? No, I, I think they're real close. I, um, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm going to go with uh, I'm going to go with growing up MAGA. So, <laughs> I, I I think I will as well. Uh, I I am torn yeah. because uh, I think uh, as as familiar as that's that subject matter team seems to be, I think we need a whole new lens on uh, and what the experience must be like for a creature uh, with that kind of misfortune and chaos around them. So, yeah, from that from that perspective, yeah. 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 You don't you don't think about it. You know, it's a crocodile with a with a heart of something. Gold will find out. <laughs> well, I guess All that right. means that uh despite the the final finish uh from set, the golden ale, formerly the golden apple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Goes to Thoth, I believe. Yeah, three to two. Yes, that that three is correct. That, that, well, it's been we another another fine adventure here. Uh, as always, Andrew, our thanks to uh, our friend Andy Snow, the DJ. Yes, for the fine theme music. I also want to want to give thanks to uh, there's a travel blog called the Not So Innocents Abroad uh, that provided some inspiration from the Horace and Set tale here. Uh, some 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 things uh-huh. apart from the uh, traditional text that were inspirational. So thanks to the authors of that. Uh, and of course, That's as always, you know. Tell your friends, leave a review, leave a good review. See us on the socials. Uh, We'll be back uh, with our next episode before too long. Uh, Look forward to that as always. Uh, But if there's nothing else, I think we have, uh, we can call it a day. All right, plan it out. That's great. We will see you next time, folks. Thanks for listening.